0: Welcome to Staying at the Table. We are friends and community, part of a church called Cornerstone Christian Fellowship in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Despite our many differences, we aim to stay at the table, which means we don't walk away from each other when we disagree. We believe the best of relationship comes when we are willing to listen to each other, showing love even when we continue to see the world differently.
1: Hello, everybody. We want to welcome you back again and we just want to say, if you're still listening and tuning in, we just want to give you Praise a big Lord. thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. And uh, listen, since you're still here, you're still with us, we just invite you to share our podcast with friends, family, let them know what's going over, what, what's happening over here at Staying at the Table. So today, we once again have the Reverend James Beatty with us. Hello, James. Hello. And we have Mr. Matt Kistler with us. Hello. Matt is a little rammy today, so, you know, everybody buckle in. Buckle in. It's a little interesting. And we have the Reverend Sophia Futris with us once again. Welcome, Sophia.
2: Glad I made it back.
1: Yes. And we have our talented sound director, Dave Moore. And I am the Reverend Dr. Tracy Saleta. And once again, we want to welcome you to our table. So... We have laid the foundation um, for our paradigm of what it means to stay at the table, and today we are going to begin a three or maybe four-part series with our friend, Reverend Sophia, um, who you've met already, and she's going to share with us the journey of her unlocking and her becoming her authentic self from childhood. Through her uh, Christianity into the acknowledgement of her true self and up through to today. So, um,
0: can you explain why that has anything to do with staying at the table?
1: Thank you, Matt. (laughs) Um, The reason that we're doing this is because so much of Sophia's journey, especially as of late, required her, and we're going to get to this in like the third. Um, the third podcast, is so much had to do with her remaining and staying, even in her faith, even in the the table of Christianity, the table of communion, the table um, of leadership, after she really began to acknowledge and enter into who she was. So it is more, Matt, the ethereal staying at the table, the... the um, how do you remain and, and even know if and when you should move down a few chairs like we shared mm-hmm. last week? Mm-hmm. Does that answer it for you? Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. I mean, go for it.
1: Thank you. So, Sophia, let me begin by saying you are a warrior. And uh, thank you for coming on and sharing your story. It is very vulnerable and really appreciate it because you're putting yourself out there. And thank you for sitting down with us and having this conversation. So for our listeners, we are going to split Sophia's journey up um, into four different sections. One is her early life and her story of really feeling that she was different and feeling that there was something different about her into her Coming to know what is often termed becoming born again or coming to know Christ, and the challenges that she faced and the journey that she faced, and then really her unlocking and her unlocking as a uh, leader, her, her her unlocking and I and coming to her understanding of her identity within the LBGTQ, um, IA plus community and um, what what happened to her as a leader as a reverend as as a part of a community in a church that had not yet become inclusive through to now and her story of where she is now so welcome and i am going to just kind of invite you sophia to begin your story as a child where where you want to begin maybe in the first moment that you felt that something was different about you, something um, you knew there was something different.
2: Yeah, thank, <clears throat> thank you all so much for having me here today. Uh, I'd, uh, this is kind of the first time I'm doing this on an audio space, and uh, there's nobody else i would rather be here with than, than you four. And so, thank you so much for for having me here and holding space for this story. Because even though it's my story, I know that it's also so many other people's story. And so, um, going to do my best to share a glimpse into it. And <clears throat> I would say that for me, as I um, well, I think this is important to say because I think it gives light to the whole journey. Is when Tracy asked me to share my story and it just. I started to instantly feel this sense of, oh my gosh, like I felt like all those similar feelings rush back from like the last 35 years. And it was like, I kind of took this journey of like fear, shame, um, like confusion and just like an excitement, like liberating. um, And it was just, just I can still feel a little bit of the fear even in my my bones even now. And it I say that to say that this is such a journey that it takes a long time for the things that get into our heads to come out of our heads.
1: Do you think the journey
2: ever ends? I don't. Yeah. I really don't. I think it's a continual process. So let me go back before I go forward. <clears throat> I would say the first time that I really realized... Um, Something was different was before I was ten years old, probably, and um I would say probably the things that my girlfriends, my friends that they would talk about men those were the things that I would feel about women and so and and I always felt kind of like I always felt like I was a boy because I was thinking things that I think I thought boys would think, and so I always thought am i was I supposed to be a boy? Not in the sense of being transgender, because I didn't know what that was back then, but in the sense that boys are supposed to feel this way. Girls are not supposed to feel this way. And so that was like, in the same way that girls would talk about their boy crushes, in my head, I was always thinking about like the girls that I had crushes on, even though back then I could never articulate that that's what was happening. And so I automatically felt like something was wrong with me. Um, from an early age, that there was just something that was not right because it was different than the other people. And then I would say that when I was around fifteen or sixteen was when I started to understand and really realize that I was something like bisexual or um, or gay, but I wasn't ready to say that yet.
1: so. Even in the community the the um school the among your peers, thank you that's the word I'm looking for um even there it, it there was still a shame attached there was still a uh, a secrecy attached to it absolutely
2: i <clears throat> i never uh i never even like uttered the potential of this being part of who I was until I was fifteen. And I was terrified. I mean, I, I was like secret service. Like if anybody ever knew, um, they were like sworn to secrecy and I had like their name written in a book, right? So it was like, uh, it, even before I kind of had, I would say, which developed later on, religious fear and shame, I already had an in, inbred kind of cultural shame, being in a Greek family, being the only girl and not really seeing a lot of representation around me of the LGBT community now it's evolved so much and so i felt i felt like instantly the feel this feeling of like i'm bad or i'm wrong and this is going to destroy me if this ever became something
0: would you say <laughs> that that sense of differentness or inappropriateness was something that was explicitly communicated that you would hear people say things about being gay or was it something as much implicit like we just don't talk about it or I don't know if you see what I'm saying but did did the pressure come from specific things being said or done or was it more of a um we kind of like a silence uh, an implicit message.
1: I'm thinking internal versus external. Yeah. Pressure. Yeah. yeah. I think it was
2: definitely both, right? Because I think on TV and just in general, there was a general sense of like, if you were gay, you were queer or you were fag, right? Those kind of like bad, those kind of inappropriate terminologies to describe people who were in an LGBTQ quote unquote lifestyle. That's kind of how I feel like most of the culture at that time was still referencing it. It wasn't as accepted and the messaging was not as bright and out there. So I didn't really have that model.
3: Mm -hmm. One of the things that you said is um, when you were growing up and listening to your peers, other young girls, talk about... um, Boys and crushes and things like that. And you you shifted it to, oh, was I supposed to be a boy because I feel this way? And is this how boys think? In In, in reference, in taking that thought and broadening the implications, how did that impact your relationship with your mother? If you're starting to think about yourself as not as holistically woman, and how you then engage that thought with your mother. And it, 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 I feel my question is, ba- is uh, confusing, <laughs> 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 but I wanted you to give it a try. Did it impact your relationship with your mother by having that go through your head?
2: That's a great question. It's, it's a really profound question that I might have to still think about i I don't know if it created distance with my dad initially and an increased closeness to my mom, mm. like looking for nurturing and comfort, but also trying to kind of be a be a people pleaser mm. I think my mom my mom much more is She wants everybody to be happy. Wants everybody to be okay, and so I think that. I think. I think I need to think about it. Okay.
1: I don't. I don't have the answer to that. Yeah. Did you, at this point, tell anyone? Did anybody? Did you let anyone in on your secret? Um. No. I think.
2: The first time the first time I ever really like uttered that I might be bisexual was um well, I have to go into another story yes, because go. it'll take me there. <clears throat> so I had gotten to the point where it was really like there was a lot that there was there was a lot that happened in school, 14, 15, 16. I really went through a lot of depression and confusion because of this and because of some other things. And um, I just wanted to give a potential trigger warning here that I will be talking about suicide, suicide ideations and depression just for those of you who also struggle so you have a heads up. <clears throat> and um, I got to the point where I was so confused where this this thinking of, oh my gosh, like I could be gay and I know that I'm different, and if there's something wrong with me, um, really was just invading my mind, my thoughts, and I was terrified because I was so obsessed and it was such a it was such a strong part of my ego and still is, of to keep everybody happy, to to please everybody to not make waves, to not make problems and to be liked. And those two things did not go well together. So it was a real war within me of, crap, this is not okay. And if I've been so far building my whole self upon this, then how do I, how do these two things go together? And in my head, they didn't. And so I got to the point where I thought it would be better to be dead than to be gay. And, um... I got super depressed. I was, um, self-harming and, um, my arms were just, just, it was not a good situation. I was really struggling and just felt super hopeless and was in a really dark place. I was trying to date a guy at the time and, um, he broke up with me and that just kind of like me over the edge, I know it was like high school drama, but it kind of put me over the edge because I was trying to hold on to like some sense of normalcy, and when that didn't work i my my fifteen year old head was like, This is like I'm gonna be this, and this is not gonna be good, so I ended up walking around my my high school hallway when I'd made the decision to end my life and I walked around my my school and I started to say goodbye to people in my head and I really just wanted help because I was so struggling and I was so tormented mentally and um, just was praying in the way that I knew how to pray <clears throat> and I uh, walked around my school a friend of mine Charlene hey Charlene if you're listening thank you for this um, she came up to me and she said hey God told me To write you this card and wanted me to tell you that, you know, you're loved and I'm your friend. I'm here with you in the midst of all this. And I call it like kind of the card moment where I turned around and went to the counselor's office right after that because it was the exact kind of intervention of love that I needed that helped me to see my value, my worth on this earth, and that I needed to stay. And once, which was a horrific day for my family. Love you, family. I know that was a horrific day, Um, which led me to go into a behavioral hospital for um, a week of lockdown inpatient. And that was the first time with the counselor there and with the groups that I said, I think I might be bisexual. And this is really the cause of a lot of my torment. And I never said it before that. And... I think I only said it like two times after that for like three years or two years until other things happened.
1: So you hit this pivotal moment, and thank you for sharing that, and you're, it finally comes out, you finally admit it. Do you embrace it? What do you do with, with that um, acknowledgement
2: There was no real
1: embracing
2: it at that time. Um, I just was trying to get better mentally. And after being in the program for three weeks, did more counseling. And it wasn't really something that I focused on because I think there was still so much shame around it. I couldn't even, like, really touch it to work on it. I didn't even know what that meant. And so um, what happened was... Like, about two years after that, I started letting myself, quote-unquote, act on it and try and, like, date a girl in high school. And that was probably one of the most terrifying experiences to ever have. Like, it wasn't, like, this fun, like, dating experience like you have in normal kind of growth experiences in high school. Um, It was sheer terror and shame and fear and hiding and covering every track that I had and meeting in like locations where nobody else would be or nobody else would say anything. And I had a couple friends who we kind of all knew. Um, and then that lasted for like a year in high school and then something else happened, but I'll pause there. So
1: it was sheer, it, it was still, um, encased in secrecy, fear yeah. and that Shame. Absolutely.
2: It was like, I literally walked around like feeling like there was like, feeling like there was like, like a, like a cop around every corner that was just about to bust me for like, um, like smuggling in like 17,000 pounds of cocaine, (laughs) right? It was serious people.
1: Now, (laughs) was she also, was she like that as well?
2: Uh, no. She, she was out and... A couple of these other people, like, they were starting to become more out. Um, and so if anybody kind of caught wind that I was with these people, like, it was, it was, like, super hush-hush. Like, there was, like, no, I can remember one time she put a card in my locker, and I thought, I, I think, like, I was like, oh, my God, what's she doing, like, near my locker? She better get away from my locker. Somebody's going to see that I had interactions with this woman, and they're going to know, and they're going to wow. put it together, and they're going to plaster me over the school, blah, 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 blah. And so it was, like, just constant... Fear, that fear of being found out. I think you live, I think, I'll, I'll speak for myself, but I think there's this this feeling of like, I'm going to be found out. Like I'm always doing something wrong. And that is a place of exhaustion. Yes,
1: that makes sense.
3: Yeah, I can, you mentioned that growth experiences in high school, which are pivotal, right? We have a kind of a pecking order, totem pole. And you're saying that was cut off for you because of secret CIA servant Sophia. Yeah. How do you recover from that?
2: I think that I still am, honestly. I think that um I think that there's I think that there's this sense of and I've heard other people who who are LGBTQ talk about this where they feel like there's this sense of like a delayed growth transformation where people who have kind of normalized experiences of dating or of crushes and of normal kind of experiences, they feel like they're not having them until they're 30 or even 40 years old. And so they're having to learn like how to show up in relationship without shame. And for me, I feel like, I, I just, like a few months ago, I feel like I just started out showing up in a relationship without mm. shame. Mm. So it's taken me a long time and I'm 35.
3: Yeah. Because what's I- impressing on me is all the other pieces of your social life that are impacted that the rest of society just takes for granted right, Mm what you do throughout high school and the normal socialization uh, process, relationship with mother and father, all these things that all of a sudden because of a person's orientation, uh, society jumps on them in such a way, everything else about life changes. Yeah. Which is... uh, uh,
0: And I think about people talking about not... from from an outside perspective, someone Mm -hmm. could say, you know, well, that's just one part of your life, so don't let that be everything. Mm -hmm. But I think you're making a real good painting, a clear picture of how this thing uh, impacts everything, and you can't just isolate it and say, well, I can still go to school and you know learn and get a job or relate to my family and be fine there but not fine in this one little thing. But I think you're, you're communicating how that, that uh, separation is really not, wasn't possible for you.
2: Yeah. Well, and I think what you're helping me to remember is just, it, it, it affects kind of your whole psyche. And I think in some way or another, we all have disintegrative experiences, experiences that make us feel like there's six different parts of us or that we're split in half and, you know, in the healing process, we have to reintegrate and become together again. We have to become whole again. I think that was Jesus's mission was that shalom, that, that deep inner wholeness of when you forget who you are and when all the pieces of yourself have been split in different places, there's this love that can bring you back together. And I think that for me, um, I can I can remember people always saying, you know, I was I would always try and get to know you and I just felt like you always had your hand out to keep me like six feet away. And so many people said that to me over and over again. And I said, yeah, well, there was always this, this undercurrent of I'm hiding something from you and from myself. And if I let you get too close, you might sniff it out, even though everybody knew anyway, P.S. You might sniff it out and you might say something to me and I might have to confront it and I'm not ready. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest things that... People said to me when I did come out and when I did embrace myself was like, I feel like, I feel like I know you. Like, yeah. I feel like I can be close to you. And my mom just said to me a few weeks ago, she's like, honey, she's like, it's so crazy. I can tell you're so much more emotionally connected. Like you, you cry more, you're in touch. She she said you used to be kind of so distant and kind of detached and wasn't, I wasn't living with my whole heart.
0: Um, this might be coming up in the next episode of your story but in what way if any did faith tradition faith play a role in this era of your life and your understanding of yourself
2: Mm -hmm. yeah I think that it was more cultural I grew up Greek Orthodox and that was a really beautiful religion and a very traditional approach to understanding faith and spirituality but there was still a sense i can still remember being at the greek orthodox church camp and there was something in me that knew it was wrong even though i didn't have all the bible verses that i have now you know there was something that i knew was not right and i think that in that space um, I can remember going to confession when I was like 16, 17, 18 at the Greek Orthodox church camp and confessing my sins to the father, the priest, you know, that I was gay or that I had gay thoughts. Those are not different than regular thoughts. But.
0: <laughs> yeah, There's just more rainbows in the thought. Yeah,
2: exactly. Thank you for that, Matt. Yeah, so I would say that it did affect me in some sort of subconscious layer of mm-hmm. like spirituality and sexuality. They don't mix and God doesn't like gay.
0: But it wasn't necessarily a strong, it it doesn't sound like your inner turmoil was necessarily like directly linked to. Um, I I hear this pastor, my pastor say, this is wrong. And therefore, like it maybe wasn't quite as direct, perhaps.
2: I think growing up, I would say that's correct. Yeah. I say it shifted once I got into college and joined certain ministries.
1: Yeah. I can only
0: imagine.
2: We'll get there later. Done, done, done.
1: So I want to go back for a minute to you talking about your adolescence and carrying this. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, part of adolescence is difficult already as it is. High school years for some is a nightmare. Yeah. But there is a privilege in being heterosexual. There is a a privilege in being part of the norm, norm, and I'm doing quotes for those of you who are listening, um, of our culture. So it makes sense to me that this was driven, especially in your day, more by culture and being marginalized because of your identification or because of your sexuality. Mm-hmm. And you know, I bring that up because I think it's important that you know we look at privilege so often as a race thing or but privilege carries in so many different avenues. And I just I just want to acknowledge that in in this moment that 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 space of being a teenager is rough anyway. Mm-hmm but you were not part of the the privileged group of cis mm-hmm. or of of heterosexuality mm-hmm. which added a layer on and i also want to acknowledge you being a pleaser mm-hmm. adds another yeah. layer on and you being sensitive to shame mm-hmm. adds another layer on and and i'm bringing this into this because everyone's story is so unique
3: mm-hmm.
1: Through our makeup, Mm -hmm. right? We're going to have ultra sensitive people, you know, and then we're going to have, you know, the ones, whatever. We're just Mm -hmm. it's just there's just a an entire line, a line of it. So I just want to acknowledge that. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Even even hearing about your the the secret friend group, you know, it makes me think about well, what was different that they felt. And and, I mean, you haven't shared their story and that's theirs to share, but it seems like they might have felt a little differently in navigating their sexuality than you did. Mm -hmm. And I think that points to exactly what you're saying. Each, we're not trying to paint one picture here of Mm -hmm. this is how it goes. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah.
0: And and I think that's often how people are portrayed is like, this is the journey Mm -hmm. that you must have went on but in reality your personality your inner traits all of these things are part of what makes this story yours and what really necessitates a different type of love for from people in response i think for people who don't identify with your journey mm. the question is how do we love you and it can be easy to try to create one response. Like sure. if I see someone, a teen struggling with homosexuality, whatever that might look like, what do I do? Mm-hmm. Well, it mm-hmm. turns out you're, you're probably just going to have to get to know them.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and listen a lot. And, and yeah. listen a lot. And take the journey. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And they may not be ready to tell you the full story. Because when you were talking about high school in a heterosexual g- grouping mm-hmm. in high school – in their privilege their privileges they have a group to grow with yes and when we look at our LGB- lgbtq plus community we isolate them so you have to go through this process alone mm-hmm. which is unthinkable
1: yeah and and if you go in the through the process with your group yeah. you're still marginalized yeah
3: yeah but some don't even can't even connect with a group. There right. is no group, right? Uh, which to me is, I, I identify with your word of saying terrifying mm-hmm. if that part of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. so thank you for sharing that. But it, it's just uh, of thinking of having to go through all of those developmental stages alone,
2: mm-hmm. yeah. And and I think about you know, you bring up privilege, like I also did it in a pretty loving, supportive home even though I wasn't like talking about it and I also was not a person of color and that the, all those other things add on to how much more difficult it makes right yes. mm-hmm. being being lgbtq is one layer being a woman is another layer being uh being a black male who's gay is a whole nother layer and it just keeps adding on yes it, or Depending on you know in religious things, there's all kinds of layers of complexity wow, I, that keeps yeah. entering. Six yes. six other layers of of privilege that I have that somebody else doesn't have. That's even more to think about. So I think about that too. Of like, I had one layer of it, but some of my friends had seven layers to deal with as well.
1: Mm-hmm. So we're going to pause here in in your story and and uh, thank you for for sharing. Part one yes. <laughs> of, of the Reverend Sophia story. And, you know, you know Matt, at the beginning you said, um, what does this have to do with staying at the table? And what's interesting to me in the broadest sense, I'm thinking of her story um, that, uh, of her ideation with suicide. That is staying at a table, right? That is staying at the table that we might call life. Mm -hmm. And saying, I'm going to remain in this place of conflict and I'm not going to leave Mm -hmm. and I'm going to, um, I'm going to stay.
0: And that was enabled by love.
1: And that was enabled by love. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So we thank you for listening. We encourage you to turn into, to tune rather, into part two, three, and four. And again, thank you, Sophia, uh, for your courage. And... um, As we always say, we uh, hope you find a table to remain at this week. Thanks. Thanks for listening.
0: Staying at the Table is hosted by Dr. Tracy Saleta, Matthew Kistler, and James Beatty, and produced by Hear It Sound and Studio. Got a question or a comment or a topic you want discussed? Email us at adminccf at gmail.com. We'd love hearing from you. And don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with new episodes coming out. And if you're feeling kind, leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. Find out more about staying at the table at cornerstonewestchester.com.